Hello, hello, it's a bite size, it's a mini, it's easy to digest. It's like a digestive cookie, you know? Well, except if I actually do it correctly this week, if I manage to do what I'm planning to do, which I know people have done, so hey, I I have those skills, I believe in myself. Then this is not gonna be a mini at all. In that case, over on YouTube, I'll put the link below, I do this thing called last meals. The concept is like super simple, right? So I sit down, I eat somebody's last meal, and that somebody just happened to be a dickhead and uh, has committed crimes, murder, rape, whatever. And then they have ended up on the death row because of that. And you know how they, they give them that like special meal. Yeah, listen on that minisode on TCTC. If you want to know more about that, they have like one special meal because they were a special person. So yeah, I eat that meal and it's not all just ASMR. No, 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 no. I tell you a case of the person as well. So if I manage to extract everything correctly, well then, this episode is gonna have the very first one that I've done, which was peak because I was literally sitting in the dark eating olives. And why was I doing that? Well, because Victor Faguerre, this guy, just had one single olive as his last meal. What was that all about? You you gotta you gotta listen to to hear about it. So that's gonna be the first one. Then on the channel, as the second one, I've done Gary hiding, but then I've covered Gary here on the pod as well. So I'll skip that one for the audio version and go straight to the third one. Where if you ever wanted to see me cry, yeah, just turn up the visuals for that case because it's a case of Joy Aridy, and it's a miscarriage of justice case. This guy was like mentally challenged and. Yep, they just accused him of crime, sent him to death row, executed him. I cried during research on multiple occasions, I cried during a video, I cried while editing. Listen, I had like a breakdown that week, it was, it was tough. And then as like the third sneak peek, I'm gonna include the case of Eileen Wurnos. Boy, that one was fucked, that woman had ish use. And she only had one cup of black coffee as her last meal, which is probably the best decision she has made in her fucking sad, sad life. Which I know, right? (laughs) So those are the sneak peeks. If you wanna go and see the actual visuals, then click the link below and subscribe to the list. So then you're notified every Friday when I put them up. So these are just sneak peeks. On the channel, there's like three more cases. So there's the case of John Speckelnik, who has had a couple of swigs of Jack Daniels for his last meal. Yeah, what the fuck is that all about, huh? Was that legal? Mm, interesting. Love him saying about my own case choice. Interesting. Then there's Teresa Lewis, and uh, you know, one of those insurance uh, kind of related murders. Who did she kill? Why did she do it? And what did she have at the last meal? You gotta, you gotta click on the links. And the last one, well, I kind of cheated with the last one because it was Jeffrey Dahmer and I have done research here again on Jeffrey Dahmer and we kind of know what he ate last, but why did I cheat? Why do I say that I cheated? Yet again, visuals, they help. Here are the sneak peeks, here are the free cases that I've covered to get you into it, you know, while you like scrub your toilet and shit and you can just commit to the audio because I'm here for any commitment that you can commit to. I take anything. <laughs> God. But yeah, I'm gonna break some. I'm gonna get the fuck out of uh, here because that's like the whole concept of a break, right? Right. And yeah, enjoy. And um, enjoy your next meal as if it was your last. That's something I say on the channel. Is it gonna stick? Is it? Will I ever know? You let me know. (laughs) Bye.
<laughs> so the audio for the olive guy didn't really work out it's like just an audio so you can watch that online so i'm just gonna include here the joy everyday case and then eileen warnos enjoy yet again enjoy Hi, hello and welcome. This is going to be a really flattering video as you, you can see. I don't know why I chose this angle. I just don't want you to look at my orange couch. It's also a mess right now. If you're new here, today's Friday. You, you could have known that by looking at the calendar. But on this channel, Friday means last meals day, where I sit down, I eat a last meal, and I tell you a story of the person who was eating that meal. It's, it's quite simple, really. Today's story is super, super sad though. I have researched it for two days and both days I brought on the tears just because it's one of those miscarriage of justice cases and also one of those cases that kind of proves to you why I'm not really pro-death penalty just because of cases like this. So yeah, just be you know, a disclaimer if I break down here. Yeah. Expect it, please. Yeah, let's dive into this sad, depressing case that's gonna ruin your Friday. Shan't we? Won't we? Let's do it. While this ice cream defrosts here. So as always, let me explain. Joey Aridy didn't actually specify the flavor of the ice cream for his last meal that will become... it will become apparent, why not? And it's also a sad piece of information. So I just chose my own flavor and he ate it out of the bowl, hence why the bowl. So somewhere through this video I'm just gonna, you know, put some ice cream into this bowl once it defrosts. Because my freezer freezes shit, like, to the next level. So as always, what can we tell about the person just judging by the meal that they have had? Well, here if I tell you that straight up from the beginning of the video, it would spoil most of this case. So let's dive in, let's start from the beginning and then that would become apparent. So, Joey Aredi was born in 1915 in Pueblo, Colorado. He was born to Syrian parents, Henry and Mary, so they emigrated to Syria for the search of better life. His dad was, at that time, working for this iron company, and Joey was their firstborn. So everything was going okay until Joey was of the age when he should have started speaking, he should have started showing, you know, certain abilities and with time it became apparent that he was kind of behind so they brought him to the doctor and they said yeah this child will have some mental conditions some mental health conditions then once his parents sent him to school after his second grade his teachers actually told him that he should go back and be homeschooled just because he was that behind other children. He was distracting in class, he wouldn't actually get the benefits, he wasn't, he wasn't actually learning anything. By this time, the family actually had two other children, so Joey had his brother and his sister. And now they weren't financially well off anyways, but this is when his dad started bootlegging as well. So his dad is struggling at this time and his mom can't actually really keep up with Joey. So Joey is sadly left to just wander the streets and just bring himself up. During this time also, especially because for the age, so 1920s, his dad kind of expected like for his oldest son to be able to help him, to help him provide for the family, which Joey in this case couldn't do. So his dad was seeking advice from the neighbors and the neighbors were like, yeah, you should commit him. 
meaning like you should put him into the mental health institution. So his father does, and he puts him into what was practically an insane asylum. I'll start soon, I'll start soon. It's still fucking frozen, okay? My freezer is a bitch, okay? Look at those colors, though. Look at those colors. Oh, it smells so good as well. Yeah, I'll need a distraction soon because this is gonna turn real sad, real quick. So, at this insane asylum, they tested Joey and they realized his IQ was only 46, which would put him at the age of a six-year-old. So he stays at this asylum, he's totally fine there, they describe him as a follower or somebody like really eager to please, which will become relevant once you realize what this case is all about. But nine months after, into his stay into this asylum, his dad realizes he's missing him and he just signed him out of it and brought him back home. But now again, Joey back home isn't supervised enough. His mom is caring for the younger children and his dad is trying to bring money to the family, so none of them is paying attention to Joey. So Joey still keeps just wandering the streets. He is literally just walking around the city, not causing any trouble. So in 1929, Joey was 14, only 14, when he was stopped on the street by this group of African-American kids and this group of boys made him perform some sexual acts on him. And luckily there was a probation officer passing by as this was happening, and they realized that these boys are sodomizing Joey. So this probation officer wrote up a letter and asked him to be committed to this insane asylum again. He wrote a letter to the justice system department as well, but there's nothing that came out of it. Like, as in, I couldn't find any information on these boys that were the actual perpetrators. But somehow, Joey was committed back to the insane asylum. And not just that, but now he was committed to the sexual deviance unit, where the staff would actually be on them constantly, just monitoring that they're not doing any perverse activity, which in this case included masturbation as well. And it was reported that during his stay there, Joey didn't perform any of this, but just immediately, immediate miscarriage of justice. Like, why was he in the insane asylum, back to the insane asylum, while these perpetrators are loose on the streets? This is when this case starts to really piss me off and really make my blood boil, so let's just pour this ice cream in, shall we? Shall we? Yep. Professionally doing this. Ouch. Yep. Very professionally. Lols. Lols. This is great. This is already going to be great. I'm doing great. You're doing great, honey. <laughs> okay. Okay, let me clean this mess up. I'll be back. Right. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be right back. <laughs> but yeah, that quickly turned into the least pleasant content to watch. Yeah, it just tells you everything about my cooking skills, doesn't it? As well. <laughs> How did it go from the most frozen ice cream ever to just like the mush? Let me shut up and tell you about the case. Mm. So Joy is back in the same insane asylum, probably the only insane asylum in town to be honest. He actually stays there until he's 21. So he's like back and forth, his parents sometimes take him home, but then he's immediately committed back. Now this asylum, now this asylum had like railroad, railroad, 
Now, this asylum had like railroad tracks right next to it. Did I pronounce it right? Probably not. I'm an immigrant. I'm an immigrant, okay? Forgive me, yeah? I'm forgiven for these things. Sport of the bitch. So usually the patients would break out of the asylum and then they would just catch a train and go wherever. So Joey does escape with a group of patients from the insane asylum when he was only 21, so in 1936. He doesn't make it far, he basically takes the train to Cheyenne, Wyoming. And here he finds like a family, Gibson family. They had like a food truck kind of situation business, so Joey is basically just asking for work. They accept him for work, but he only worked, I think, like six days with them and stayed there um, to be compensated before they had to move. Like, it's a food truck, they're going places. And they couldn't actually bring Joey along because he was never like an official employee. So the Gibson family drops Joey off to the railroads, but soon after he keeps wandering, he gets arrested. And now, this is when it becomes truly sad. So, a week before he left and took the train, um, there was a murder in town. It was reported that one or two assailants broke into the house of Mrs. McMurty and her aunt was 58 in Pueblo. And about a couple of days after that, on August 15th, there was another very similar attack. So, while the parents were away for this charity event, again, one or two assailants that weren't sure at the time entered the house where Dorothy Drain was sleeping. Dorothy Drain was attacked with her sister Barbara. Dorothy was 15 and Barbara was only 12. So, the assailant attacked both of them, then went to rape Dorothy and killed her with a blow or hatchet to the head. Barbara survived, but she was in coma at the time. So here the police now made a connection that these crimes have been related. Also, there have been two witnesses, two girls that have also been assaulted, that reported a Mexican-looking man coming out of the house. And although Joey wasn't Mexican or wasn't Syrian, he kind of did, like you could have thought that he was just from his looks. It was super easy to convince him. He was from the area, boom, one point checked. Second point, he was committed in the asylum for perverse behavior, even though he was a fucking victim. And, well, third point, just for the cakes, it was his looks. We're gonna need more ice cream, because the rest of this story is fucking depressing. Okay. So. Also, this is soup by now. You say it even though ice cream, man. This is soup. This is soup. Let's be generous, right? It's 10 in the morning. Let's be generous with our fucking ice cream intake for the day. <sighs> Stop judging me. See you? Judging me, okay? Joe is arrested. They have questioned him. Apparently, according to George Carroll, let me tell you the name, let me name shame, because everybody deserves to be name shame in this story. Uh, according to him, Joey confessed to him. Do you remember? Joey had the IQ of 46. Joey was not able to differentiate between this tray and this ice cream. But yeah, sure, Joey confessed to the murder of the girls, said the names and everything. So this detective, Sheriff George Carroll, makes the call to the police chief, to the Pueblo police station, and he realizes that they have a man in custody who is actually Mexican. His name is Frank Aguilar. But he now is like, what if the two of them have done this together? Even better than we have two men in prison instead of one, regardless of the one of them being innocent. 
So now, of course, Sheriff needs to feed this information to Joey, who is very easily convinced, very easily says yes to everything, because his mental capacity is at the one of the six-year-old child. So according to the Sheriff, Joey said that he was with a man named Frank, that he did kill Dorothy Drain. But Frank's story aside, Frank was actually convicted of these murders because he was working with the dad of the family. And as you remember, Barbara survived, so she has recognized him as the attacker. So he was convicted, righteously so, and he actually got death penalty as well, and was executed in 1937. The sheriff didn't even just stop there. They brought this guy, they brought Joey to the house, to the place of the murder, like... He's technically a child. He's just going to be traumatized. And apparently here he reenacted it perfectly. He he said that he first he said he used a club, but then changed the story that he used an axe. So sorry, how was that not never questioned? Like why was that never questioned further? Apparently he reenacted how he has done it, and then they bring him into the station for him to confront Frank. And Frank says like Frank looks at him. Frank had one look at him, he was like, I've never seen the guy. But the police is like, no, 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 he knows who you are. He just reenacted the crime, Frank, but just, you know, admit that, yeah, that it was him. So Frank was like, I'm gonna die anyways. Yeah, I had an accomplice, you know, let's just not say that I was the monster here. So Frank immediately kind of saw, like, because he was smart and very disturbed cookie, that he doesn't want to be connected with the sex part of this crime and probably the police fed him the information that Joey was a sexual deviant here. So Frank goes ahead to say that him and Joey were basically observing the house, waiting for the parents to leave, and then they attacked the girls. That Frank was the one to hit Dorothy with a hatchet, but then the Joey was the rapist. So of course that worked for him perfectly, and then it worked for the police because they finally had enough evidence to convict Joey. Now the case goes to trial and his defense lawyers just say that he's not in the state to know the right from wrong, he's definitely not in the state to have committed this murder. And at the time the term for his state was imbecile, so they classify him as dead, which could have been considered like an insanity defense, but in this case it was like, yeah, he had a condition and his IQ was really low. He couldn't have done it. Uh, there was no physical evidence against him, Barbara never actually was the witness in his case, but it was solely based on his confession and Frank's story. As we know, studies since have also shown that people who don't have the mental capacity are also more prone to give false confessions. Not to mention that they didn't have a shred of evidence against him. Well, let me correct myself. Well, I think this was dismissed in the end, but still, his conviction was mostly based on Frank's confession and his own confession, so they couldn't dismiss those, even though, I mean, there were no cameras then, they just based it off the word of the sheriff who wanted everybody convicted. But the evidence bit, so basically, they kind of shredded apart the fact that there was no hair evidence on the scene until Joey was given the opportunity to go and reenact the crime, and then suddenly, oh, there was like a thread of hair on the scene. Well, yeah, he was just there. The saddest part was when Joey was brought to the stand himself. Do you know what an oath is? Joey answered, no. Who is Franklin Roosevelt? Joey, no answer. Do you know what a hearing is about? Joey, no. Bernard, can you write? Joey, sure. Can you write anything besides your name? Joey, no. 
Attorney Arnold also said I really couldn't even understand what execution meant. Believe me if I say that if he is guest, it will take a long time for the state of Colorado to live down to disgrace. Ireland argued to the Colorado State Supreme Court. So, let me cry a bit while I need my ice cream. The jury takes only three and a half hours to make a decision and we know this is going to be a guilty verdict. And it was reported that Joey actually didn't even react to this because he didn't understand what is happening. So he has been brought in prison and he has been named the happiest inmate on death row. You're literally witnessing my fucking period state. It's great. Totally not TMI. So he was named the happiest inmate on the row because he used to play with his toy train and actually everybody everybody loved him, so like the inmates and the sheriff would actually bring him different train toys to play with. The other inmates would play with him and just like cause train diversions, cause train accidents as well to make him laugh. And when they asked him what he wants for his last meal, he didn't even understand the concept, so he didn't know. So they were like, okay, Joey, what do you want to eat? And he just said lots and lots of ice cream. <sighs> this boy, my whole fucking face is wet. Okay. Let's get through this. Let's get through this. There's a positive point at the end of it, I think, somehow. <laughs> somehow. So on his very last day, he has eaten his ice cream off the bowl. And his mom and sister were there to say goodbye. There are pictures of him hugging his mom. He, of course, again, did not understand what is happening and that it's the last time that he's going to see his mom and hug her. He didn't understand the concept of the guest chamber at all. So this was on January the 6th, 1939. And one of those wardens asked him to give him like the train while he goes into the guest chamber. His last words were, no, no, Joy won't die. And it was reported that even in the gas chamber he was smiling. So, now that that's done, all that is over. The justice, even if it's, I mean, some form of justice, won't happen for the next 72 years until 2007. Well, in the meantime, Roy Best, who was the warden at that um, prison, has been convicted in 1952, finally, because of his brutal treatment of prisoners. He was convicted because he was whipping prisoners. And the sheriff, remember George Harrell, the sheriff that basically forced him, fed him words for a confession. Well, he got his last headline in 1961, when he died at a care home. So in 1992, so like with the rise of the internet, people were actually looking into these different miscarriages of justices. There was this advocate for miscarriages of justices, uh, Perske, who was contacted by this poet who like wrote this poem on Joy Arity's case. The warden wept before the little beans were dropped that night in the airless room. This is a soup I know. So in 1995, Robert Peschke actually published like a book called Deadly Innocence that was evaluating these kind of stories, so where people were dis with disabilities were coerced to make false confessions. And now all of the friends of Joy Arity who have created a website with the same name and um, this attorney, Martinez, joined Robert Peschke to write up a 400, 400 pages letter to the governor at the time, Ritter. So they have wrote like a petition for this guy to clear Joey's name. And finally in 2007, <laughs> Stop, 
And finally, in 2007, Joy's name has been posthumously cleared and the governor said it is in the interest of justice and simple decency to restore his good name. So this is when the friends of Joy already have added the epitaph to the tombstone reading Here lies an innocent man. We have gone through it. This case gets to me like no other. I just don't understand the miscarriages of justice. Like, I don't get how it takes 72 years to clear somebody's name posthumously. When clearly there was nothing for him to be convicted in the first place. But yeah, thanks for... Thanks for doing this roller coaster with me. You see what happens when you don't comment and give me suggestions. I choose the saddest case in the history and I was like, well, I have cried enough during research. I won't cry on camera. No? Incorrect. Incorrect. But yeah, that's it. Thanks for joining me while I ate this soup of ice cream and told you this sad, sad story. Drop in the comments what you want me to cover next time. Please make it something happy and hilarious so we can all laugh and forget the fact that I cried on camera for a case. But yeah, what do you think about this case? Do you know any other sketches? Or do you mean if you want me to continue to cry on the camera? Yeah, sure as hell. Drop other miscarriages of justice. This segment exists for all of these afro cases, but yeah, I have nothing else to tell you, I have nothing else to say, so uh, I guess this is goodbye. Move on with your Friday, move on, happy thoughts, happy thoughts, okay? Bye! Cheers, cheers to all. You kind of look lost, but I think we might have just found you. <laughs> can never say that with a straight face. This is the lost and found intro, and you know what that means. You might do, but then if you're new here and you don't, that means it's lost meals time. And this bitch didn't want to eat anything, she just wanted to drink coffee. Which I think I can stand by, but then again, I don't think I would take coffee as my last meal. Just because, you know, everything intensifies, you still have it like a few hours before the actual execution. I love how I'm hypothetically talking like I'm gonna commit crime and end up on that death row. <laughs> Suddenly reevaluating all of my mistakes. In terms of coffee, it intensifies all of your senses. Do you wanna take coffee before execution? I mean, I'm not judging or anything. This is like the smallest mistake that the woman we're talking about today has made. So who are we talking on about today? She has been dubbed the first female serial killer. In the meantime, Elizabeth Batori and the Lavinia Fisher were like, mm, am I a joke to you? Like, sorry, what? This bitch is taking this title? We've been doing this since the 1800s. This one is gonna take the title? Shut they're out there turning in their freaking graves, being like, mm mm, not today. The Vivian. If you didn't get that reference, Eileen is definitely not the first serial killer. She killed in like 1999, okay? Way, way, way too late for her to be the first serial killer. Why I think the media adopted her that is I think like before her, you would either have black widows, so the women who would just be like out there like housewives, like, mm, doing their chores. And then just in the meantime poisoning every single meal for their husbands and then just, you know, claiming their insurance and shit. Mm. Or there would be angels of death, so like usually nurses, you know, you think like, oh, it's a sexy nurse and she's still like fucking killing you. Out of different reasons, angels of death are really interesting, as in, it can be mercy, 
It can be just because they can. It can be that they get off on it and they just have sex next to the corpses. Now that that's clarified, let's dive into the story. But first, what can we tell about Eileen just from the last meal that she has had? By meal, I mean, she didn't even eat. So in terms of last meals, you can reject your last meal and you can just choose to have coffee or choose to have nothing or choose not to spend any money and have just the last meal that you would have in prison for that day. That's called pulling a bandy. But yeah, so just coffee, huh? Was she bland? Was she bland? She was definitely not bland, but then again, exactly that. There's nothing deep to her. Now again, considering all my fucking mistakes and everything I have done in my life, because coffee is life. But yeah, there's nothing deep to I leave. Well, controversial opinion. But yeah, let's dive into the motherfucking bitch's life. So Aline was born as the second child of family on February 29th, 1956. Okay. It's a black kid, by the way, but yeah, it's not a fashion choice. Love with the cafe the hits. This is gonna be a wonderful time. We're <laughs> gonna have a trip. Okay, her childhood, blissful, blissful childhood, best childhood we have ever heard of. Of course not. This is one of the most disturbing childhoods, like ever. So her parents separated before she was even born. And her dad spent time in prison during her childhood for he was in prison for child molestation. So he kills himself in prison because he is a child molester. You know the treatment that they, like that those kind of prisoners get in prison. Meanwhile, her mother can't deal with her or Keith, her brother. So she abandons them. So um, they move to live to their grandparents. This is by the age of four. So by the age of four, like the dad abandoned them. Then the dad killed himself in prison. Mom abandoned them huge abandonment issues, straight up, even like she's not even four yet. Now she moves to the grandparents and if this had been like a wonderful childhood, you know, if, if her grandparents turned out to be great people, this might have been a different story, but no. Grandfather, piece of shit. Very abusive, super violent. Grandmother, alcoholic. Grandfather was not just physically abusive, he was also sexually abusing her as well. It's also speculated that she had sexual relations with Keith, her brother, but that has never been confirmed. What has kind of been confirmed, because it resulted in a teen pregnancy when she was only 14, is that her grandfather would basically sell her out to his friends, or like he would bring his friends over and she would sleep with them. So she ends up pregnant at the age of 14. Now is when she spends some time at the home for like the unwed mothers. She gives the child to adoption and this is when she turns to prostitution. Well, slight correction there. She didn't just voluntarily turn to prostitution. The grandparents kicked her out since she became pregnant because, you know, it's her fault that she got pregnant. As, as you know, it's her fault that she got pregnant. It's not the fault of the people that have been looking after her and sexually abusing her and sharing her with friends. So, like, she got pregnant by some of them. I mean, for all accounts, it, it would have been her grandfather's child. <sighs> Speculation, never confirmed, not a fact, okay? So, Eileen is living in the woods, and, of course, to provide for herself, she started robbing places, robbing people, you know, mm -hmm. hitchhiking, then robbing them, which would eventually escalate. But in 1974, there has been, like, a turn of events 
that could have resulted in something great, positive, her turning her life around. So in 1974, she is already getting caught for theft. So she has been charged for like driving while drunk and disorderly and for firing a gun from a moving vehicle. Like cool. She serves like a bit of time, now gets out on probation, and in 70 she decides to settle in Florida. Settling again meaning she's living outside. Like she's living in the woods, living in different homes. This is however when she meets a rich yachtsman, like while she's in Florida, you know, by the beach, chilling. This is however where she meets a wealthy yachtsman, Louis Fool. And by that point she's in her like she's in her twenties. By this point, she's still young, like she has been drinking, you know, taking, like, drinking, doing drugs, living on the outside, living rough, but she still had the looks, so they, the two of them quickly get married, but also the marriage quickly gets annulled because Louis reports her. So her maladjusted life and everything reflects in this marriage. He takes a restraining order against her because of her violent outburst. He was actually scared for his wife due to this. And soon after that, she's again left on the streets and she again turns to robbery and petty crimes. Now, as if she needed another trigger, her brother dies in 1976, but he leaves her a 10,000 life insurance policy, which of course she doesn't use to get her life together. She had like a fine for disorderly driving and she used the money to like pay that fine, which like the fine was like a hundred bucks. And then she just splashed it on like a luxury new car, which again, she would wreck afterwards because she was not mentally okay. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to justify Aline at any point in this story, but like she never had role models. She never understood like that she could go seek mental health help, that like she could go get herself into therapy, that she could maybe improve her life. So when somebody gives you 10,000, pounds to you today, you might invest them better. She was just like, yeah, instead of sleeping in a forest, I'm going to sleep in a car. So let's get a car. That might serve me for something. This is why later in the story as well, a lot of people will consider her a victim and like would victimize her a lot. And I feel like the background of the story helps you to get the perspective of who she is and like that she could have maybe never been a functioning human being. But then again, there have been he hasn't had a criminal record. Like, there have been people probably in her family that didn't commit these crimes because we never heard about them. So, doesn't really justify, just kind of explains, like, she isn't really capable of making, like, rational decisions because she never knew what rational decisions were. About a decade later, so now we're in the 80s, Eileen meets Taria Moore in Florida. And I'll refer to her as Ty throughout the rest of the video just because everybody else does. So they start like a they start a relationship and this is when she kind of feels completely comfortable with what she's doing. You know, she's been in and out of prison, she's been doing petty thefts now for over a decade. So she's like, escalation time, right? Moon is going to end up being super important because they kind of tied her with Eileen even in the 80s, even before her crime spree. So, July 4th, 1987, the two of them used to go to bars and drink. This is how they met. Like, they were just really into boozing. So July 4th, 1987, they tie both of them to this bar in Daytona, in Florida, and accuse Eileen of the assault and battery with a beer bottle. Then the next year, again, the two of them are located again in Daytona Beach in March 1988. 
Uri is listed as a witness to an incident where Eileen claimed that a bus driver pushed her off the bus because of confrontation. This could, by the way, become a pattern. Not that Uri is a witness, although that you, but the fact that Eileen is just like, I am a victim. Like, I'm so, like, I'm so victimized in every single situation. Please believe me. Like, he pushed me off the bus for no fucking reason. He does it every day. I mentioned these two incidents just because they're kind of like a prequel also to explain how the police, what the police was thinking after she went on this killing spree and how they actually tied it back to her after that. But now let's go into the main body of the story and her killing seven men within the space of a year. So between 1989 and 1990 she has killed seven men. Let's break it down and speak of how the police was trying to piece the bits and pieces together. Maybe her most controversial kill, and the one that she has heavily used to her self-defense story, is the kill that she has done in November 1989 of Richard Mallory. He was the electronic store owner, and his body was found again abandoned in the woods. And he had two bullets to his lung. So the police first found like an abandoned car, and then miles away in the woods they found his body. After being convicted for this murder, so after they placed every single murder like and located it, and connected it to her. She has said that Richard has brought her to this area and she has been sodomized and apparently this was the, like a famous area for sexual requests or like for prostitution, sex, sex work. This will eventually work towards her victim defense spell somewhat because she still ended up on the death row, didn't she? But yeah, this will sort of work this will work towards her supporters to see her as the victim of the crime just because of the area where Richard Mallory has been found. Now, David Spears, her second victim, was reported missing in May 1990. He has been divorced and this is when the pieces and this is when the pieces of the puzzle are gonna sort of start to fit together. You know, when you make the puzzle and you just have the outline, you're like, oh, okay. Basically, this is when they knew that the person they're looking for is a woman because it's 1990 by this point it's not 70s hitchhiking is not as popular as it was before so this is when they were like yeah it's definitely a woman and definitely knows the area because also with David we have the most information just because Eileen kind of seems to have went out of her way to place this to look like she was the victim of the crime and to stage it so David has been found without his clothes but he had a cap on also, there was like a condom on the scene, so again, if you are to actually victimize somebody, would you bother to even put a condom on? Or like, even just like, how would you have undressed yourself and then had put a cap on? So this has definitely been like a staged kind of scene that the police has found. He was found alongside the US Route 19. He has been shot six times in the chest by a 22 caliber pistol. Now, the pistol information was never as relevant as in, like, shooting the guy was always her MO. But she will change the calibers of the pistol. So, with the next victim, Charles Carskadon, he was found in the Pasco County. And here, she used a 20 caliber pistol. So, this one was tied to her because she has pawned it from, like, a pawnbroker shop. Charles was a part-time rodeo worker. And this is the one where they were kind of thinking, like, there is some premeditation here, you know, so if you're thinking of like, okay, piecing a puzzle, kind of going inwards, you're like, okay, there's a little more, more details with each and every one of these murders. So here, she was wrapped, um, she wrapped Charles into an electric blanket, and they were like, who the fuck just has an electric blanket in her head? 
who the hell has the electric blanket on hand? Like, if it's not somebody who is a drifter, it's like maybe sleeping in a car, sleeping outside, sleeping in the forest. It's not something that you just have handy, you know, like in the back of your car. So, like, we're definitely looking for a female drifter. Ammo is shooting, kind of like escalating into overkill. So, they're like piecing these pieces together. Also, they could tie her to the car that belonged to Charles, so they could also like tie her to the victim's vehicles and, in this particular case, to his car. Her next victim was again found in July 1990, and his name was Peter Sims. They could tie her to her next victim, Peter Sims, just because of her fingerprint, like on the inside handle of his car. Because again, when she ditches the body, she takes the car. But this is the one she has never been charged for, because they never managed to actually find Peter's body. Her next victim was Troy Burress. He was a 50-year-old sausage salesman. He has been found in Marion County and was shot twice again to the chest. Now, her second-to-last victim was a cop. And this is heavily speculated that this one in particular was an overkill because he used to be chief of police, or because he probably either has said that he was a cop, or she has figured it out during the ride. So with Charles Humphreys, his body was found again, similar area, Marion County, in September 1990. But he was found clothed, so she didn't even want to play the victim card, she didn't even want to stage this. She shot him five times in the torso, and then one final shot to his head. This is super fucking heavy, like... <laughs> This is so heavy because usually with these cases you kind of have a victim, you have like some background on them. Here with serial killers, and especially with Eileen, it's just so methodical. It's just like a list for her that she has just gone through and she's like followed these sets of rules. Complete disregard to anything. Like she's even getting sloppy. She doesn't even care. And the last victim that I managed to connect her to was Walter Antonio. He was a trucker and a security guard, and he was found in Dixie County. He has been shot again four times to the chest, and they found his car, and this is how they finally put these pieces together. They found his car abandoned again, and he had, like, and it had Eileen's DNA. So now the police had fingerprints to at least tie her to a couple. They could link her to missing vehicles, so they could link her to missing men. But they still kind of knew that because Eileen was actually using aliases at that point, they knew that this was going to be hard, that they need something concrete. So they were like, hey, remember Eileen? Remember who, in, back in, you know, a couple of years ago, when she still wasn't on this murderous spree? Remember who she was with? Yeah, you know, remember that bus driver witness? Uh -huh. Remember the beer bottle girl? Yeah, she was weird, but she was with somebody, right? Let's get to her girlfriend, because we kind of need a witness testimony here. Because otherwise they would have just, what, a couple of fingerprints, sort of like an ammo, but they need something like for a tight, closed case, because otherwise Aliyah is just going to continue. She ain't planning to stop anytime soon. So they get to Ty, and in mid-January 1991, Ty agrees like, yeah, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna take the phone confession out of her, just, you know, I'm not getting any prison time now, right? I'm not getting no jail time, they're like, yeah, sure, whatever, just get us this bitch. So, she does. And it's really during the sentencing, during the trial, and in the aftermath, when you can really deep dive into Eileen's brain. And trust me, I did not want to deep dive into Eileen's brain. God, this is mental. So, of course, her defense is it's self-defense. Every single person has attacked her ever in her life. Here, really, the prosecution was like, well, we only have, like, one clear-cut case, so let's get her for that, and we are aiming for death penalty. So this is the case of Mallory. 
And then the defense was like, well, great, this is going to be easy because Mallory has her served. Mallory has served in prison for this exact crime, so let's play the self-defense. Her psychiatrist testified she had a borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and also during her trial, she had a ton of supporters. Like, hey, Aline has been standing up for the victims of sexual assault this whole time. I reconvicted this girl. She has been a victim during these whole cases. But the jury kind of saw through all of that, and they convicted her to death penalty. Like, they took only four days to reach a death penalty verdict. So in January 1992, they found her guilty for the murder of Mallory. Now she goes to prison. In prison, something just ensues in her brain. Something happens in her brain. She's like, I'm going to confess to every other murder, you know? She was probably thinking, like, I'm going to get that death penalty anyways. It's not like they can harden my sentence. It's not like they can make it any worse. So she, conf like, she confesses to every single other murder as well. She has also said, because then she was brought to the court again for them to give her a death penalty for every single other murder that she has confessed to. So, she has said to the court, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but the others did not. They only began to start to. So then on May 1992, she was given three more death sentences. During the next couple of months, she fired her defense lawyers, and she was like, she wanted to own up to it and to say, like, yeah, I killed these men in cold blood. I killed these men, robbed them, robbed them as cold as ice, and I'll do it again to you. There's no chance of keeping me alive or anything, because I'd kill again. I have hate crawling from my system. I'm so sick of hearing that she's crazy stuff. I've been evaluated so many times. I'm competent, sane, and I'm trying to tell the truth. And one who seriously hates human life and would kill again. So her attorneys are there like, she's not mentally competent, she doesn't know what she's saying. Munoz is like, I'm competent, I would kill again. Yeah, you, you try to release me, you try not to murder me. After she was sent to death row, she was protesting heavily against her being like sent to life sentence, right? And she was like, no, 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 I want to die. She's been sitting on death row for a while, so in 2002, the governor at the time actually lifted her death row penalty because, as you know, like, the documentaries have been made about her, so, like, the, like she has given interviews and stuff, and she was pissed that this death row has been lifted. She was like, I want to die. Like, I've been telling you I want to die. I deserve death. We said to the interviewer, you sabotaged my ass, society and the cops and the system. A rape woman got executed and was used for books and movies and shit. Her final on-camera words were, thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. So even in prison, she would be food poisoning. She would try to appear insane. She would try to, like, hurt others and hurt herself. Just to, like, again, make sure that this lift is abandoned and that she gets the death penalty. On October the 9th, 2002, she was executed by lethal injection. So October the 9th, she chooses... Uh, just a cup of coffee as her last meal, and she rejects the normal last meal. She had a budget of, like, $20. She's like, nah, don't want that. Fuck that, I just want to die. What do you not understand? She was executed by lethal injection, and her body was cremated and buried in her town of birth. Her last words. Her last words. <clears throat> i just like to say I'm sailing with a rock, and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus. June the 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all. I'll be back. That's... I... I... <laughs> just, no words. 
Like that's one statement I don't want to hear from a death row inmate that you're just about to legally inject as the person injecting them in particular. It's like, I'll be back. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> please don't, please don't haunt me at night. That would be nice. Please don't haunt me. Her last request to friends and family were equally strange. <laughs> that's the best way to describe it. So she wanted her ashes to be spilled like, what is the word, man? So she requested crashes to be spread under a tree in her birth town of Michigan, just next to her childhood friend. She also requested Natalie's merchant song Carnival to be played at her funeral. Now, as I'm dumb, I don't actually understand how cremated people have funerals. I know, I know. So dumb. So, is the funeral considered to be the spreading of the ashes, or is it... Or do they have like something separate once you cremate a body? Yeah, let me know in the comments. So dumb. Didn't look that up. But yeah, I listened to the song and it explains a couple of things. It's actually a decent song. It's like, wow. Also, it's one of her most played songs on Spotify. I guess it's because of that, because of people knowing the shit. Or maybe it's just a fucking famous song, okay? And I'm not aware. Don't fucking come for me. And yeah, that kind of summarizes the case of Eileen Warners. I hate, A, that we don't have the background info on any of these victims, as in, we don't know much details, you know? It's not like a classic murder case where you have details on the victim as much as you have on the killer, no. And it's also because it's all kind of like, oh yeah, it all happened within a year, so we're just gonna treat them as numbers. I hate that. Also, I always try to think of motivation, like of motives in these cases. I think I've seen enough of like criminal minds and shows like this to understand that she is just hated men. And she just killed all of these men as like this overkill because the one person that she actually wanted to kill was already dead and that was her grandfather. But yeah, I mean, I could be bullshitting out of my fucking brain. I might not know the answers to everything, okay? I'm just reminding Ranger in this room, but yeah, if anybody actually... If you want to speculate to the answers, leave the comments below. Or if you're actually a licensed like, psychologist, psychiatrist, and actually want to tell me that, no, that is not the motive at all, then yeah, feel free to drop, drop that below as well. But yeah, this case was a bummer. I don't know why I always do that at like 10 a.m. and then bum myself out for the rest of the day. I should probably change that. I should also probably stop covering people that had caffeine as their last meals and then I can do them at night and be like, hey, last thing before sleep. Is there ever a good time of day to cover somebody like Eileen Warners? But yeah, that's it. Subscribe if you like this kind of content. Like if you like this kind of content. You know, you know the drill. <laughs> it's not your first YouTube rodeo, okay? Mm. Yeah, starting to make fucking references to Rodeo, great. Yeah, so I have nothing else to tell you and nothing else to say. So until next Friday, uh, bye. 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 Bye.